Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of Conversations. We're committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. On our program, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome to Conversations. This is your host, Michael Stone, and I have a really unique and fascinating guest today. John Lockley is a senior Sangoma in the Kosa lineage from South Africa. He's also known as a traditional healer, diviner, or spirit doctor. And Sangomas are traditional African shamans who are called by the ancestors to apprentice under another Sangoma to receive transmissions or the gift of healing. John is the founder of the Way of the Leopard Teachings, which is a unique teaching system to help people from non-shamanic cultures to reconnect to their inner wilderness, their bones or ancestors, their dreams, and the natural world. John, welcome to Conversations. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. It's, it's really lovely uh, to have you, and I really enjoyed your book, The Leopard Warrior, A Journey into the African Teachings, of ancestry, instinct, and dreams. And I thought we could start with an overview of, you know, this Irish immigrant was born and raised in apartheid, South Africa. Uh, you were a medic with the Black Special Forces, and you were a South Korean Zen Buddhist monk, and then you got initiated into a Black African culture as a Sangoma, which is a traditional uh, shamanic healer and teacher, as we said. So. Tell us about your journey. Just give us a little overview here. <laughs> There's so much to say, you know. That's why I ended up writing a book, because it was all so much. <laughs> so, um, yes, I mean, so my journey really started, as, a, as, a, as I've said um, in the book, um, my journey really started in Dublin in the 1950s with my mother. And uh, she had a dream about, about African elephants. And that's what uh, she had a vision actually, which is walking on the pier near the near the near the sea, and uh, she had a vision of these elephants coming to her, and she had this this absolute fascination and love of Africa, and that's what propelled and inspired her to go to 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 Africa, and her first stop was was Rhodesia in those days it was Zimbabwe, and that's where she met my father, and then she encouraged encouraged my father to go into the bush and to, uh, to, to look at um, wildlife, in particular the elephants. And, and that's how my journey began, because um, I was born in Cape Town, beneath Table Mountain, with a mark of the cross of Sangomas around my eyes, which is this kind of white birth clay um, around my eyes. And as I came out of my mother's womb, my mother said to the doctor that I looked like a little Aborigine, <laughs> this white clay around my eyes. And of course, the doctor was shocked because it was apartheid South Africa. And so he smiled. He was shocked, you know, as white doctor. And my, my dad laughed. My mother laughed. And then, of course, the nurses uh, ululated. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I think, um, and then it was a number of years later, at the age of 16, when I started getting these calling dreams, the dreams of, of the spirit um, calling me to train. 
in a particular kind of way. And uh, the first vision I had was 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 really of of walking in the in the Amazon looking for gold. And I was at school at the time, like I say, I was sixteen, and it was a dream. So it was a nighttime experience. I was asleep, and in the dream. I was walking and searching through the jungle looking for gold and um, and I found the gold I found the gold and it was a wonderful moment finding this gold amidst the, the jungle and and as I woke up there was a woman's voice that said to me in order for me to connect with my destiny I needed to come close to death and uh, and it was kind of a shocking revelation but I was excited I know that's strange, but I was excited. I was like, wow, I want to connect with my destiny. But in order to do that, I have to come close to death. And the age of 16, I knew kind of what that meant for me because uh, as, a white, as a white boy in, in, in South Africa and apartheid, we were conscripted and drafted into the South African army. So I knew that in a couple of years' time from the age of 18, I had to go into the, the South African military but when I, one thing I was lucky about, I was able to choose what sections of the armed forces to go into. And because of this dream and my feeling that I wanted to be a healer, that I wanted to help people rather than hurt people, I chose to become a medic in the South African army. And I applied for that. And I was accepted. And uh, because of that dream, I had a feeling that I wanted to go to the front lines and be a, be a paramedic, or what we call in those days an operational medic because we had a terrible war going on for 10 years in Angola and it was just on our border and a lot of the, the soldiers were sent to Angola. So I had this feeling about being trained as an operational medic to go to the front lines and experience death, you could say, but also help people, help people over the other side. So fortunately, the Angolan war ended just before I went into the military and where I was drafted was a military hospital. And in the military hospital is where I started learning the crafts of becoming a healer. And in particular, the calling of becoming a Sangorma was crystallized and focused in the military hospital because of all the suffering or the death or the pain that I experienced. So the first assignment I had was looking after soldiers from a special forces battalion. And most of the soldiers were black soldiers. And it was my first experience in working with African traditional culture. And um, even though I went to a private school where there was no apartheid, so we had all colors of the rainbow, you know, black, green, indigo, every color of the human race we had at that school. I wasn't really familiar with apartheid growing up because of my private schooling. I really became familiar with apartheid and discrimination in the South African army. However, it was strange because even though there's a strong sense of discrimination in the country, in the military hospital, everyone was treated equally. And even the, the senior officers who made very racist comments, I must say to you, very racist comments, they still showed equal attention and you could say loving care for all their patients, didn't matter what color they were. So there is this contradiction incredible racism and bad language, but at the same time, they treated all their patients equally. In fact, one of the doctors who was, a, who was a senior doctor, he even pulled me aside one day and he said, he said, medic, and I said, yes, sir. And he was a colonel, like I say, and he said, how are my men doing? And I knew what he meant. He meant black special forces guys, <laughs> because he was so enamored with the way that they could 
heal so quickly, how their bodies could heal and how they never complained. They never complained once. And he said, what do they need, John? And I said, sir, they need more cream because they're massaging their bodies with this cream to help, help heal their bodies from all these wounds. And he says, anything you need, John, you just tell me, we'll write it down and we'll get it sent in. And I said, okay, thank you, sir. So I wrote down uh, vitamin E cream, vitamin A cream. Um, and then on, term, on top of that, there was also various kinds of vitamin drinks and vitamin B um, drinks to give the people energy. And, um, and I was amazed because he was known as quite a racist guy. But when it came to healing the soldiers, he was acting like a top doctor. <laughs> So I noticed these senses and these, these contradictions in humanity, I noticed in the military. And one of the things I could share was one of my first Sangoma teachings that I experienced in the hospital, and I was 18 at the time. So every day, um, and I can, I can teach what I can share this with the, with the listeners, because it's a very powerful story, and, um, and it really affected me deeply. So if you can imagine, the ward has got a number of different rooms. And because apartheid means separation and the white people were separate from the black people, in the different rooms within the ward, we'd have you know, black soldiers or we'd have white soldiers and so on and so on. But they'd all be in the same ward and they would all be given equal treatment. But there was the slight separation in terms of different rooms. <laughs> Anyway, so every day I'd walk into the one particular room, which was just the black special forces guys. And I walk in and I'd, and I'd open the curtains and, and I would just say, good morning, guys. Did you have any good dreams? And I'd say that because of my own background with dreaming from, a, from an Irish mother. And every day the guys would keep quiet. And then on the third day uh, in a row, the third day in a row, I said, uh, Good morning, guys. Did you have any good dreams? And again, everyone was quiet. And suddenly there was a voice at the back of the room. It was Sergeant and Lawful. And he was the head of the, this particular um, platoon of, 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 of special forces um, operators. And uh, I said, yes, sir. And he said, come over here, medic. I want to speak to you. So I went to the side of his bed and I said, yes, Sergeant. How can I help you, Sergeant? And he said, Medic, Private, in my culture, dreams are very serious. When I dream, my ancestors show me who's going to live and who's going to die in my platoon. I tell my men, this is your time. Your ancestors are calling you. They laugh at me, but they still die. In my culture, dreams are very serious. Please don't ask me again whether I've had any good dreams or not. I said, yes, Sergeant, sir. Of course, thank you, Sergeant. And I never asked him again. Now, the interesting thing with him was that uh, he, was becoming a, he was becoming a Sangoma. He was a Zulu man, and he was an apprentice, and he was going through the calling illness, the trials and tribulations and sicknesses of, of being called to become a Sangoma. And, um, and all the nursing staff, all the black nursing staff were giving him gifts every day and looking after him and pampering him because he was a very powerful man and had a very strong gift. I could feel that. So that was my first Sangwama teaching. 
And I knew intuitively what he was saying to me because I'd been called from the age of 16, but there was no one I could speak to because I was his white boy. And interesting enough, and I never realized this, why, why I did this, but I never went into the, into the rooms of the, of the white soldiers and asked them if they had any good dreams. I never did that. I don't know why. I just intuitively never did that. And it's not that I thought that the, the black soldiers were better than the whites or vice versa. No. For some reason, I felt I could talk to my black soldier friends about dreams, whereas I felt I couldn't really do that in the same way with, mm. my, with my white colleagues. And why is that? I don't know. I don't know the reason for that, but look what's happened 30 years later. <laughs> so you yourself <laughs> um, got this illness, I think you call Tuasa or something like that, uh, that leads to your shamanic studies. Talk about your own struggles with your illness and how then you went through the South Korean Zen monastery and then eventually ended up going into the training with the uh, Kosa Sangomos. Yes, I mean, amongst, amongst traditional Sangoma cultures around the world, there's what you call the calling illness. So you don't choose to become a shaman. If you choose to become a shaman, it means your ego is calling you, not your soul. So people don't generally in indigenous cultures, they don't choose to become a shaman. The spirits or the ancestors choose you to become a shaman. And the way they do that is through dreams and often through a profound illness, which can bring the shaman or the initiate close to death. Because as the, the initiate becomes close to death, they learn the lessons of empathy and compassion, and they, let, they learn to let go of the ego and the way they look and the way all these kinds of things that we have, our trappings with our body, we have to let go of. So in the Southern African tradition amongst the Sangwamas, we have the illness we call the Twaza, and the Twaza is the calling illness. And generally someone who's only trained and apprenticed, if it is shown that they are suffering from this illness and because it's a sign that the ancestors are calling them and that they need to accept the calling and they need to find a teacher. So through accepting the calling, the illness abates through working with a teacher who gives you herbs and ceremonies, the illness gets easier and then you are shown how to work with your gift. So in my particular case, I had, uh, I was sick for seven years and it was quite dramatic because the way the sickness affected me like it did with or like it does with a lot of indigenous traditions i had a lot of dreams and a lot of prophetic dreams but the dreams came along with very extreme physical sensations so my immune system was very weak even though at night time i was very psychic so the more psychic i got the weaker my body got so i got all kinds of different kinds of um of illnesses because my immunity was so low. So I got hepatitis A, I got, I got dysentery, I got bulharzia, I got um, glandular fever, tick bite fever. Uh, I broke bones. I came close to, I had a couple of near death experiences. I had a lot of, a lot of high temperature in my body as well. A lot of fevers, which is a, quite a classic um, symptom are the fevers because the, your, your immune system is weakened, but also your body goes through this profound cleansing. And the way the body is cleansed is through fever. So I had a lot of 
high fevers, which I'd wake up at the nights where I was sweating profusely and my body was very hot and I was losing a lot of weight. And, um, and then after that, my dreams went to another level and they became clearer. So each time I went through a, what I call a healing fever, my dreams got clearer. But it was a very difficult time because I had no guidance. The only guidance I received was, was meditation. So I'd meditate every day. And in the evenings, I would receive visions after my meditation or during my meditation. And then at night, I would receive very strong dreams, which would show me where I needed to go, what direction I needed to go. And um, like I say, I knew that I had to find a teacher, a Sangoma teacher. But apartheid being what it was, and me being a white boy from a middle-class background, I, I wasn't able to find a teacher because, well, it was against the law for white whites to go into the township. Um, you couldn't just walk in. You know, there was a big military presence and police presence. You could go in as a soldier or policeman, but to go in looking to work with a traditional healer, if you didn't have contacts, it just wasn't possible. So in my dreams, I was encouraged to carry on working with the Zen tradition. And I was told that, uh, that I needed to practice hard and that one day I'd find a Zen master who was going to train me. So I went to university and I started uh, supporting a meditation group and I became friends with someone who was working in a, who, was, who had her own little, little meditation, Buddhist meditation center. And then after about six months of hard meditation, someone said to me, there's a Zen master coming from South Korea. And, um, and he came, he came to our, our meditation center. And interesting enough, this is quite relevant because I was sharing this here at Inside LA, here in Beverly Hills, because the Zen master's name is Zen master Subong, but he originally comes from Hawaii. And last, last year, I was at the Ram Das uh, retreat, and I had the great fortune of meeting um, Trish Goodman, and sorry, Trudy Goodman, and, and her husband, Jack Cornfield. And I thanked them for the beautiful talk that they shared. And, and then I started talking to Trudy, and I told her that my original, my background was Zen Buddhism and my teacher was Zen Master Subong, who comes originally from Hawaii. And she looked at me and she said his name, his, lame, his layman's name. And it turned out that, uh, that she was a good friend of his, that her husband, her ex-husband was very, was best friends with him. So she knew him from way back. Wow. She knew him from way back. <laughs> And, and then she ended up having a session with me and we were both in, in tears because it was such a strong connection. Mm. And, um, and that's what precipitated an, another chain of events that brought me here to Inside LA, here in Beverly Hills. Mm -hmm. But uh, going back to the story, I remember with Zen Master Su Bong when he came and he was with us. He was able to juggle this, you can't say contradictions in, in the human system between this kindness that we all share with each other, but yet also this violence that we commit to one another because he came at the heights of apartheid and, and he passed away tragically in Hong Kong. And now I'm coming back to America and America now is dealing with a lot of conflict. But I remember uh, one day with Zen Master Su Bong when he was talking to us and um, one of our retreats, he, uh, he came out of the meditation and he hit his Zen stick hard on the ground. 
and he pointed over the hill to the township where the Kosa people were living and where there was, like I said, during apartheid, you had black people living in one place and white people living in the other. So he pointed over the hill to, to, to the Kosa community, which I ended up living with and working with. That became my community. Well, that was also the community of uh, Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela, right? Yes, I mean, it's the same tribe, but they wouldn't necessarily that part that that particular community but they part from the same tribe the same part of the country which was the eastern cape but i remember zen master subong shouting and saying some kind of demonstration is needed and we all looked at our at one of our mentors who's a human rights lawyer anthony osler who was doing a lot of work to to spread equality and, and human rights in all sectors of the, of the community and at that stage i was only 21 i was very young and I felt that what I needed to do was go over the hill, but it was still apartheid. So at the end of that retreat, I, I had a lot of visions and I was very sick and I had to drop out of university. And then I said to Zen Master Subong, please, sir, I want to go with you to, to South Korea and possibly become a monk. I'm not sure. And he said, you're welcome. So that's why I went over to South Korea with him and I trained with him. And then his, his teacher, Dae Sun Sunim, who was the head of the lineage, of, of this Korean order. He also trained me and, and he also gave me interviews. And because I was so sick, I was able to go and, and have, um, have treatments with his, his doctor, his Chinese doctor. And they treated me with acupuncture and herbal medicine. And it managed to help the Twaza illness, but it didn't go away completely. But the fevers carried on all the way through the South Korean winter of three months, I had a high fever. So I was suffering a lot and I was meditating, I was exhausted and I was dreaming and I was going through a lot. So I remember looking outside the window at the height of the, of the silent retreats and watching snow fall and feeling my body burning up with this fever mm. and then going to the Chinese doctor and then having acupuncture put in my, in my, in my body to help, me getting, to help me get through the three-month retreat. So whenever I needed help, they said to me to just go to one of the Chinese doctors in the group and I'll tap on his shoulder and he had turned from the meditation and in silence, he had walked to the back of the room, the tea room, and he'd get his needles out and all in silence, I would sit cross-legged and in silence, he'd put the needles through my body, all over my body. And then after 10 minutes, we'd bow to each other and he would go and meditate and I would go and meditate. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's how I got through three months, three months of meditation in a Korean winter. That's how I, I survived with this burning fever. <laughs> I've been in the Korean winter too, two of them actually. So I know how bitter that can be. Well, let's move forward now and talk about uh, coming back and entering the training and the initiation and your journey back to Ireland to discover your roots and your ancestors? Yes, I mean, it's a long, it's a big question that, Michael, but uh, I'll try and do my best. So, so my training involved 10 years of apprenticeship. And during that time, I would train intensively for about three or four months. And sometimes it'd be a, up to a year I'd be training during that period. And then I'd also went, during the time I went to Ireland, because I was called by my mother's people, who are my people, my mother's parents and grandparents and ancestors. So I went to Ireland in order to ground myself with my own ancestry 
And that's when I, I made a lot of friends in Ireland and um, in particular musicians, which is quite interesting because the word Sangoma means people of the song. So the people I automatically gravitated to in, in Ireland were, were folk musicians, traditional Irish musicians, and they, were, they are prolific dreamers. And they taught me the gift, two Irish gifts they taught me, the gift of humor and the gift of music. And the humor, the gift of humor and laughter was very important for me because as I was training in the South African township, which is very tough because of the poverty and a lot of death due to AIDS and TB and all kinds of illnesses, I'd often come back from my training period over those years. I'd return to Ireland and I would be quite distraught because some of my friends would have died and I would have encountered a lot of hardship and a lot of, a lot of poverty, a lot of sadness. And my Irish friends managed to buoy my spirits up through, through laughter. And I remember one particular situation where I came back from South Africa and I was really dealing with um, a friend, uh, some former colleague who had, who had passed away tragically, and also illness and other things I was witnessing in the township, which were very, very painful and very sad. And I remember sharing with a good friend of mine the story and he was listening to me and he said to me after a while, I hear you, John, you know, this beautiful Irish accent. And he said to me, but I don't know Africa, John. I don't know Africa. I just know you. And we could carry on talking like this, John, but I could see you're just going to get sadder and sadder. And I don't want you to stop talking, John. I want you to carry on. And I want to help you, John. But I don't know Africa. I don't know the people there. I just know you. I'll tell you what, John. Miriam is playing a gig down the road. Some really good tunes. Why don't we go and have a pint down the road? And I'm not telling you to stop talking. Feel it, feel it. But let's go and listen to some music and see if it will help you. So we went. And he said it in the most diplomatic way. And I really felt the truth in his words because what he helped me to do is to focus on living, even though I was dealing with lots of elements of death. Mm. A good lesson. So, <laughs> so my, Irish, my Irish colleagues and friends really taught me the art of dealing with melancholy, dealing with depression, and also dealing with lots of tragedy. My Irish friends taught me how to deal with tragedy. In your particular lineage, too, there's quite a, a focus on ancestors and our relationship to our ancestors. Before we get into the initiation and some of that, why don't you talk about the ancestors and why that's so important? Because I think we're really orphans here, particularly in North America, in terms of our ancestry. Most of us really don't have a great sense of that or a deep connection like many other cultures, Asian and indigenous cultures. Okay, well, I mean, ancestors and working with ancestors isn't just um, the closer tradition. It's the whole of Africa. And I can speak very closely about the Sangoma tradition, not just the Kosa, but the Zulu, the Setswana, the Pondo, the Pedi. All of the Sangoma traditions and lineages in South Africa will work strongly with ancestors. And in fact, all the traditional healers in South Africa will work with ancestors and probably the whole of Africa. So this notion of working with ancestors is not just an African concept, it's a universal concept. And it's always there when people are connected more deeply to the earth. So let me speak a bit more about it. You know, in terms of the African system, 
we say that if you want to connect with the other worlds, if you want to connect with your life path, if you want to connect with your spirituality, if you want to connect with your human potential, your Ubuntu means your humanity, you have to connect with your bones. You have to connect with your ancestors. And the reason is very simple. It's like we come into this earth plane as a drop of consciousness. We come in from the great spirit. So you could say the great spirit is, um, is the great dreamer or the creator or whatever you want to say. The great spirit drops this consciousness in and it's birthed through mother and father. These two physical creatures, we are earthed through mom and dad. So in terms of Buddhist terminology, if I can use that, because a lot of people in North America and Europe will be familiar with Buddhism. In Buddhism, we talk about the three jewels, Buddha, which is enlightenment or the shining, Dharma, which are the teachings, and Sangha, which is the community. So as this human consciousness is dropped in, we are birthed through our mother and our father. They are our first Sangha. They are our first community. And they are the bedrock on which we rest our humanity. So our mom and dad are connected to two lineages, the lineage of the female, the lineage of the male. And when people want to start a, a spiritual journey, the most important thing to do is to just say a prayer of thanks for the gift of humanity to their mother's people and just say their names and say thank you. And then you can say a prayer of thanks to the father's people and say their name and just say thank you. It's not about worshipping your ancestors, because a lot of Europeans misunderstand that. It's not about that. It's about honoring the gift of life that you have received from your mother and father and your ancestors down the family tree. And as you do that, just say thank you. Just a quiet meditation of, I come from these two groups of people, and I thank my mother's people, and you say the name thank my father's people, and you say the name. So saying the name of your people is very important. So in my situation, I come from the Kellys in Ireland and the Lockleys in Nottingham. So I would just say thank you to my mother's people, the Kellys, and then I'd say thank you to my father's people from, from, from England, not from, originally from Nottingham. And what happened to me when I started doing this? Now, this is very interesting. As I gave thanks for the gift of life to my mother's people, and my father's people, they came to me in dreams and they opened the road for me in terms of my life, my profession, all these things. And um, I just need to add in another thing, sorry. Um, we would honor and praise our blood ancestors, which is mom and dad, because that's your root chakra, that your, the bedrock of your humanity rests on the root chakra of your humanity, I mean, of your mom and dad, and that's your sangha. But then the next line of ancestors, which you would also honor, is your adopted ancestors, which are those wisdom keepers that come to you from other traditions that adopt you spiritually and train you. So in my case, it's the Kosa, because they have officially adopted me as a Kosa man into my teacher's family and into her tribe. So I would always honor and praise my teacher, Mam Gwevu, and her, her ancestors, as well as her husband the Suguinis. And I would also pay respect to my Korean and Zen tradition because I've been adopted by them spiritually. So when I'm teaching people, I would always say it's a triangle. 
first to honor and praise the great spirit, this consciousness, this, the dreamer, Krishna, this consciousness dropping into us. We would honor and praise the great spirit. And then on the left, your mother's people, right, your father's people. So the Sangha, the Sangha is being recognized and honored. And then if you have adopted ancestors or traditions that are supporting you, you honor and praise them. Now, what happens to a lot of people in Europe and in the West, they have great shame when it comes to their ancestors because of war, because of colonialism, because of abuse. And it's much easier for them to put on their fridge a picture of the Dalai Lama or Nelson Mandela or some other kind of guru. And, you know, the gurus are sexy. You know, they look good. They're beautiful. They're just shining lights. And I said to people when I say to people when I'm giving public talks, if it's easier for you to honor and praise Nelson Mandela and the Dalai Lama than your own relatives, you've got a problem. And that's okay. Welcome to the human race. Welcome. 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 Because the job of being human is a difficult job. It's a challenge. And it starts with family. If you have problems in your family, that's where the consciousness should be focused on. And all you do is you just say thank you for the gift of life. And you do not condone bad behavior in your family line. All you do is give thanks for that consciousness that's been passed on to you through this family line. You just give a bow of thanks to them. And as you do that, the sense of dignity starts coming into you and your family tree. And then the dreams start coming. So this is what I teach. It's a fundamental teaching of what we call Ubuntu, Bobuntu, which means the depth of humanity. And it's also a fundamental Buddhist teaching because in Buddhism, the Sangha, the community, is very, very important. So nowadays we have lots of education of mindfulness in the West. We have lots of Buddhist and yoga education. But I think people are missing the fundamentals of the Sangha, which means your community it means your mother and father. It means your ancestors. It means your bones. It means bowing and giving thanks to your people first. Doesn't Ubuntu also mean sacred reciprocity, the exchange of energy? Isn't yes. that also a big part of it? Yes. I mean, it starts of, it's all to do with relationship, Michael, relationship. Mm -hmm. That's the, it's almost like our job here or our lesson as human beings in this earth realm is to understand the relationships we have with each other and with the plant world, the insect world. It's all to do with relationships. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the, the elements of reciprocity we're having to learn. And it starts with, with developing a relationship with our own spirit. So when we start on the Sangoma journey, the first thing we have to learn is how to connect with our own spirit. Not the spirit of the jaguar or the leopard or the elephant. It's first your own spirit. So I wouldn't come for training with my teacher or even being given the calling if I hadn't had a profound connection with my own spirit and the great spirit. Because once that happens... Once your own spirit is in pain and it's suffering, it's a sign that your soul is starting to speak to you. It's a bit like the salmon. The salmon has a call, and that call means it needs to swim upstream. And it swims upstream despite the rapids, despite its head being hit against the rock and going, oh, 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 it's so, oh. <laughs> and it keeps swimming upstream. And the reason is, is because there's only one voice going through the salmon. And that's the voice of nature, Mother Nature. And that one voice is saying, 
You have to go upstream, darling. You have to go upstream because then you're going to make nice little babies at the top. And sweetie, I know it's difficult. I know you're going to hit your head so many times. But sweetie, my darling, the most important thing is that you swim up this river and you get to the top. So the salmon, the salmon is so connected to the voice of nature. It doesn't have the ego. It doesn't have the mind we have. So there's no dualism. There's no, there's no conflicting thoughts. It's just up the stream, find the spawning ground, make the babies, listen to the mother. That's it. So human beings, we have to connect to the soul or the spirit of the salmon inside ourselves, which is our own spirit, which is the connection to mother nature. And that voice needs to become louder than Facebook or social media or the outside world. So we have to bring our awareness inwards and occupy our inner world and connect with our soul. That's the first lesson. That's the first job. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I would say from my own practice that there's so much suffering and at the heart of that suffering is always a sense of separation, of separateness, of not being connected. And so it really speaks to what you're saying, this Ubuntu. Now, so, so we've talked about uh, the ancestors and our relationships and Ubuntu. But there's a whole other area, and you've mentioned many times your dreams. So talk about the relationship of dream time to entering into the shamanic or Sangoma path. Okay, thanks, Michael. Well, the dream time, I just want to go, go into the concept of the dream time. I mean, all cultures speak about the dream time and Buddhism, yoga, all cultures speak about, and even Christianity, they speak about us coming from this immaculate blackness, this nothingness. Um, and in Buddhism, they talk about gati gati, paragati, parasamgati, bodhiswaha, which is the, the heart sutra. And it says that we come from this nothingness. So if you can just, if the listener and in ourselves, if we can just imagine we come from the space of nothingness or universal consciousness or this matrix, this plasmic matrix, and our consciousness is dropped into this world, and it comes from, you could say, the dream, you know, the great dreamer, and it comes from the dream time. So the Bushman people in the Kalahari Desert would say that, and, and the, the Bushman people are, are probably one of the oldest indigenous tribes in the world today, and they would look at the stars, and they would say that this life is a dream being dreamt by the great dreamer, and in the Zen tradition, we'll say that all of this is a dream and we have to wake up from the dream. So if we can just imagine that we all come from the dream time, this place of nothingness, this matrix, this collective consciousness. And when we die, we're going to go back to that space. And every night we die because every night we sleep and our consciousness drops into that space, that void. So what's important for each person is to remember their dreams because as they remember their dreams, their nighttime dreams when they're sleeping, as they remember those dreams, they connect to that space before they are born. They connect to their, the essence of their soul, but they also connect to their life purpose. Wow. Okay, so we've got dream time, we've got ancestors. You spoke a little bit about music and dance, but that's another aspect of your particular lineage. So talk a little bit about 
you, you mentioned it from the Irish sense, but as a Sangoma, uh, what's the role of music and dance? Oh, that's a good question. So mu music and dance is, in terms of the Sangoma tradition, is the way that we pray, the way we connect to, to the divine. So we, we sing in terms of we chant. So the songs are called Ngormas, but they really chant. And as we sing, we, we, there's the rhythm of life connects with us. And then the sound of the drum connects all of us. So the drum is, is very powerful because it's a heartbeat rhythm. And that heartbeat rhythm connects all of us, connects the whole community. So we sing and we pound our feet and we dance. And this is our prayer to the Mother Earth. And this is the way we connect to the divine. And it's the same in Ireland with the traditional Irish sessions. It's done in a circle and the music and the rhythms, what creates what I call the vortex energy. And that vortex energy is a particular kind of energy that takes us out of our thinking mind and into our soul, into our bones. And as we do that, we get the sense of epiphany or visions or sense of intuitions come to us. And it's like that for everyone. You know, if you go to an Irish session in Dublin, for example, a traditional Irish session, and you listen to the music and you have a few pints and you just completely drop into your heart, something will come to you. You'll get a vision or intuition, something will happen. The same in South Africa when you at a traditional, uh, a traditional Sangoma um, session and the drums are going, the songs are going, at some point you will have a realization or an intuition or a feeling or just feel love, or you might feel a sense of sadness or all kinds of emotions you'll feel, but what you will feel more than anything else is your heart. You'll feel your soul, you'll feel your heart. Mm. So John, let's talk about your initiation ceremony. I'm really interested in it. There was a sacrifice involved, and I'm talking about the final initiation, the mm -hmm. ceremony that went on. Can you just take us through that a little bit? And I was a little like, oh, they're, they're still sacrificing animals. And uh, I, I realized that there are many cultures that are still doing that. So I was very interested in, in that ceremony that you did. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I know this is very difficult for a lot of listeners, but this is the way they do it in Africa. And we need to pay respect to the culture in Africa rather than judge. So um, if people do feel a sense of discomfort, then I, I ask them to please keep an open mind and most importantly, an open heart because African culture is, needs to be respected and not judged because for too long, Europeans have judged Africa and they've judged traditional healers. And part of me writing this book is to say, stop, listen, Open your heart with, a, with an inquiring mind rather than judging. And I also need to say that a lot of cultures, all the indigenous cultures in the world, use animal sacrifice. So the Mongolian, the Siberian, the Wicholi, all of them. And I'm not making a judgment and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying this is part of the human race and this is part of our connection to animals and to plants and to nature. Well, talk about the blood too. Talk about yeah. the, the relationship of the, the blood and the sacrifice. And it isn't you just kill the animal, you eat the animal afterwards too. Well, actually we don't kill the animal. We sacrifice the animal. You know, there's a difference between slaughter 
and sacrifice. And the difference has got to do with prayer and it's got to do with the way an animal is treated. And often that animal will choose you. So often, like for example, in the Bushmen and the Khoisan and other traditions and in the Khosa, we will speak to a group of goats and will say, brothers, we need one of you to go to the ancestors and give a message to the ancestors. And this is what happened to me with one of my ceremonies. We spoke to the goats and we said, said brothers and sisters, we need, well, I actually would say brothers because we use a male goat. And um, we say, brothers, we need one of you to go to the ancestors and become our emissary, become our ambassador and go to them and give a message from us. And this is what I saw. And I was with the group of elders and I spoke to the goats. And then the herd boy called the goats away and one goat was left standing. So we said to the owner of the goats, is this goat available for us to buy? And he said, yes. And the goat just stood there and just pounded its, its feet into the ground. And then when we touched the goat, it started crying. And then all of us said, Kamago, which is a sign that the ancestors see of warmer. The ancestors have agreed that this animal is going to be the emissary to go to the other world. So I'd, I really encourage people to see this in a whole different way and open your heart, open your mind, just feed it and see it in a whole different way. This animal is actually seen as an emissary, as a messenger, and they are treated with a lot of dignity, a lot of love, and they are seen as messengers going into the other world to give a message to the, to the dead, to the ancestors, who are not seen as dead, they're seen as alive. So with us, we say that in order to connect the electrical impulses or the life impulses of this world with the other, we have to use blood because blood is red and blood is the connection between all of life. So blood, life creates life. And the way we create life is through prayers, is through dancing and only in extreme cases, animal sacrifice but only in extreme cases, which means the extreme cases means the person has to have a dream. You don't just go in and just take an animal and just, you know, just kill it for, for no reason. Unless it's for food and the people are hungry, that's a different kind of thing. And I, and I, and I don't judge that because people have to live and they have to feed their families. But in terms of a medicine ceremony, this person has to have a dream. The initiate, the Sangoma has to have a dream where the ancestors or the, the ancestors are calling for this kind of blood to feed the vortex energy, the energy of life. Mm. And it's very difficult to explain to someone who's not initiate, initiated and who doesn't feel this and who doesn't have these kinds of dreams. Because you have to remember, I came from a very strong and very strict Buddhist background where there was no killing. And it was very difficult for me, you can imagine. However, I had a dream where the animal was being called, animals were being called to the great spirit in this particular kind of way. And when I saw this, I knew that animal sacrifice had to happen. But it had to happen in a very peaceful way, in a way that is in harmony with the universe, that's in harmony with nature. And... We have to be very careful of, of, the, of our thinking minds and our egos and drop into the world of nature. 
And this is the world that I'm opening up to people through my writing. And this is the world that was opened up to me through the Krosa Nation and through my Sangoma colleagues. It's not the world of the Western way. It's the world of nature. It's the world of indigenous shamans and healers. Mm -hmm. And this is the world that we all, regardless of what color you are, what ethnicity, all of us have to enter the world of nature, which means dropping your thinking mind, opening your heart, letting go into the earth and feeling what is the earth saying to you. Mm. Wow. You know, I'm reminded as you're speaking of that and we're getting close to the end, um, that uh, the animal's blood is like your blood, red. And the same thing is true of uh, you came out of apartheid and um, this huge separation between black and whites. And I'm sure that you've had many people say to you, John, what are you doing, you know, this black African uh, tradition? And here you are, a white guy doing this. I mean, you must get a lot of eyebrows raised. And yet, you know, you're very much of that tradition and teach the ways of this particular lineage. So talk about that dichotomy. And I think there might be a learning in there for all of us about yeah. our connection with nature and humanity. Yes, I mean, in the early days, um, I mean, yes, it is difficult and it's still very difficult for me. But all I can say to people and to listeners who are judging, drop into your heart. If you are judging and you feel prejudice, welcome to the human race. If you take action with your judging and you take the next step, there's many names to that and it's not love. Love is about looking at another human being with kindness and listening to them. And um, if you're interested in my story, then I encourage you to drop into your heart and to just listen. So at the end of the day, I was invited into the Krosa Nation to become a Sangoma. I never asked them to make me a Sangoma. I never forced them or said anything like that. I was invited by the elders of the Krosa Nation through my teacher and other elders to become a Sangoma. And they said it a number of times, John, you have the dreams and the calling, welcome, come into our home. And I was anxious in the beginning and I was unsure because of, of apartheid and being a white boy. And I said to them, what does it mean to become a Sangoma? And my teacher says, what it means is that you're going to be able to help people in all different ways. The ancestor is going to move through you and you're going to stop being so sick. So to people who are unsure of this journey of, my, of mine, all I can say is that I was adopted, trained, and loved by Kosa elders from Nelson Mandela's tradition. And if you have a problem with that, then I encourage you to take it up with them. And I must tell you, they will tell you straight, Daba has the calling, Utikro came to us, the great spirit came to us and told him, told us that we need to train him and we are listening to the great spirit and our ancestors. And if you have a problem with us, you speak to the great spirit, you speak to the ancestors. Mm. Because we, as Sangomas, are teaching the way of Ubuntu, the way of humanity. So if my story activates people, good, because we need to become activated, we need to look at the way we're treating one another, and we need to engage with one another with actions of humanity, which involves kindness involves love and when we love we listen and we don't judge mm. beautiful so john we're 
it's time to really close, but I'm wondering if you could do a closing prayer or song for us just to uh, let us drop into that space that you uh, provide for people when you're doing your work. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you, Michael. Mm. So this song comes from South Africa. It comes from the depth of my initiations. It comes from my, my teachers and my family. And it's called Utika, which means the Great Spirit. Oh, so I'm honoring and praising the great spirit, all our ancestors, and I ask the great ones to please teach the people the depth, the depth of humanity, the depth of humanity, Ubuntu, Ubuntu, so that we can stop the warfare between us. John Lockley, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today for your big, generous heart, for your new book, The Leopard Warrior. Uh, from Sounds True, it's a journey into the African teachings of ancestry, instinct, and dreams. Quite a story. At the end, there's some wonderful practices and teachings that I highly recommend people to uh, take on. And just much gratitude, my friend. Thanks. Thanks, Marco. Thank you very much. <laughs> Conversations is an independently produced program supported by KVMR 89.5 Nevada City and listener contributions. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinking in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or order any of our past shows, go to our website at arewelistening.net.